Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Tech in Shanghai podcast. This week on the show, I had the very good fortune to speak with a legend of the Shanghai entrepreneurial community and an all-around nice guy, Mr. Mark Sekia. Mark initially thought it was a bit odd that I wanted to have him on this podcast, as he doesn't really consider himself as a quote-unquote tech entrepreneur. However, with 2013 revenues of over $25 million, most of which coming from online orders, I thought he qualified. I also thought it would be timely to hear Mark's story, as the food delivery market seems to be experiencing a global boom at the moment, with all sorts of new startups entering the fray. So I thought it would be interesting to hear from a guy who was doing all this stuff way before it was cool. In listening to Mark speak, you get a sense for the vastness and variety of experiences he's accumulated over the years, and a distinct maturity, humility, and wisdom that have been the result of starting a business from scratch in 1999 and seeing it through to tremendous success today. We cover a lot in this show, but some of the more notable things Mark shared with me included developing the right mindset for success, especially in China, and setting proper expectations, the importance of contingency planning, how to roll with the punches doing business in China, and some interesting commentary on some of the more modern companies entering the food delivery market. I also asked Mark, though now it's obvious that Sherpas is a runaway success, how did he deal with the stress and uncertainty before their success was a foregone conclusion? As is often the case, his answer included, among other things, alcohol, deteriorating health, an indomitable will to succeed, and, of course, a little luck. Mark was very open and down-to-earth when we spoke, so hopefully you'll find it both informative and entertaining. Don't forget to hit us up on iTunes if you have any feedback or comments, and without further ado, please enjoy my chat with the founder of Sherpas, Mr. Mark Sekia. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition. It's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Mark, thanks for joining me. Certainly. So, uh... Obviously, we just did a little tour of the Sherpa's office here. And before we get into some of the nuts and bolts that we, we touched on a second ago, um, I recently watched in preparation for speaking with you today a Sherpa's video on YouTube set to the Baywatch music <laughs> and pretty much telling the same story, but with some of your couriers and, and other staff here. Why don't you get the ball rolling by telling me what that well, was all that about. was done because I really enjoyed that too. By the way, that was done by one of our uh, ex-social media editors, uh, Davy Gravy. And anyone who's used Sherpas before will probably recognize that name. He used to write all of our emails and everything. And on the side, he called himself a director, and he's been begging us to do something for a while. And we set aside maybe a couple thousand RMB budget for him to do it, but it's great. You know, he just does the whole intro song to Baywatch, and yeah. while he's doing it, we use a courier as a stand-in for David Hasselhoff. It was amazing. He's I mean, jumping over puddles. I and, couldn't believe it only had like a thousand views or something and I, I you know i guess you guys didn't push it or anything but well, it's kind of old it had a lot of views at the time right we just i think more of our views were on yoku youtube makes wasn't sense very makes big sense for us at the time but i remember i watched it yesterday i think and i hadn't heard that music in like 10 years or whenever it was and you've got this standard looking chinese dude with his shirt off you know it's a stretch to say or it's Easy, you know, he didn't have much going on in the way of abs or anything, and he's running through some lady's hose that she's, you know, putting out into the street. I thought it was brilliant. That's a real courier, Shu Shui Zhan. Is he still here? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I saw some of the uh, the Harlem Shake stuff you guys did. Yeah. I guess that was the same same guy yeah. at the same time. So, um, 
a lot of people know about Sherpas. I think a lot of people listening, especially if they've lived in China or living in China, will know about Sherpas. But I think a lot of people don't really know how long you've been at this. And we on this show a lot, we talk about entrepreneurship and startups and especially these days. And as, as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, from living in kind of the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area now, there's so much, uh, so much interest and hype and, you know, so many young people want to be involved in that industry. But what I want you to maybe share, and you can use this as an opportunity to tell the, the Sherpa story briefly, but you know, you started Sherpas in 1997, is that right? Well, I wrote the business plan in 97. Well, we didn't launch until 99. 99. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a long time ago now. And I think it seems like now you guys have grown into this, I think it's fair to say, tremendous success, right? I mean, it's a very popular service. Everyone knows about it. You see the little orange guys driving around all over the, the town in, in Shanghai. But obviously, it wasn't always that way. Um, and I think these days with everything that's going on, people can have a condensed view of what it takes to be a success in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of all those different things. So why don't you give us the brief? Well, do you how, want me to first explain for the non-China-based users what we are or is that yeah, not sure. necessary? Yeah, go for it. So more or less, we have a call center in, in Shanghai and then we field calls from three cities in China and people just choose a restaurant that we work with and then they choose the food that they want. And then we send one of our couriers to the restaurant to pick up the food and deliver it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 150 different businesses like this in America. We're just kind of a little bit of a different scale. You know, we're, we'll do close to 3,000 orders on a, on a day. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe someone like DoorDash out of Silicon Valley, I don't think they'll quite get to that volume because they're using cars and a call center that has two people. Right. Whereas like you saw today, we're more, I think we have 75 people now in our, in our call center here. But you guys started doing this m earlier than those those services in, in other parts of the world, did you not? No, we were the first in China. But, oh, no, gosh, I mean, Takeout Taxi was in the States in the 80s, at least in Grand okay. Rapids, Michigan, where I was growing up, we right. had it. Because when I, when, when, you know, when friends of mine and when I myself go home, you know, people are like, why do you live in China? You know, because they get the Western media view of China. And, you know, there's a number of different reasons. But, you know, something that people often say is like, well, yeah, we have this thing called Sherpas. We can call... Uh, we can call them up at any time, or not any time, but for any time you'd want to eat, usually, you can get food from any restaurant in the city or the best restaurants in the city. It's fantastic. And, you know, in a lot of places still back in North America, those services might exist, but I don't think they're quite as mainstream. We're to do our ads. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of that, but, you know, we were lucky enough that when we launched, we kind of got to put on a Superman cape and be the savior. Right. At the time, you know, in the late 90s in Shanghai, there was uh, something called hardship pay. People who got transferred over to China for their jobs got additional money because it was so difficult to live here. Right. There was no bread. There was no cheese. <clears throat> the biggest Western food available was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm -hmm. You know, There just wasn't a lot in the way of similarities to your home life. But that has evaporated over time. I mean, now with a, about a million non-Chinese living in this city, you know, we have amenities. We have hospitals where the doctors all speak English. Is it that English many now? A million? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it also depends how deep you get into the Taiwanese and right, Korean right. and Japanese. But non-mainland Chinese yep. uh, citizens oh certainly yeah. wow yeah. i mean just if you just do the math by looking at the schools and then figuring out that the parents you know and all that it, it, the numbers get huge yeah there's a french school like down in the south of shanghai that's absolutely massive i didn't even know it existed yeah and do you think that's you know this is another thing that pops up a lot recently but the expat dynamic in china like as you mentioned people aren't getting that hardship pay anymore and maybe fewer people are coming on those big packages and more people are just coming because they see opportunity or they want some adventure or well, coming whatever. is an interesting word i from what the data that we've gotten 
starting in around 2014, more expats have been leaving Shanghai that's than what, arriving. Yeah, and that's that's what I wanted to ask. What what what's what's going on there? You mentioned earlier that you got a ton of a ton of data coming through the Sherpas uh, network. So. And you've been here well, for that, a long time, obviously. That data comes from the moving companies that we work with. Right. That, that's not necessarily us. We don't have our finger on the pulse of that specific metric. Sure. But we, you know, we have more and more Chinese customers over time. And I don't think it's because we're great in the Chinese community. I think it's because just the, the Westerner growth isn't here. I mean, we. But what's your take on that? Why is that happening? Um, I, I, well, I mean, I, I have my own personal belief, and whether this is true or not, I don't know. Yeah. But as China becomes, you know, whether I don't like using third, second, and first world or developing country, but as the economy develops, they're going to do what every single country has done over time. They care about their own. Yeah. You know, try being a Chinese person and immigrating into America. Why is it so hard? Because America cares about their own. Right. And every country's like that, you know, whether it's the Syrian refugee issue in Europe or expats living here. Yeah. And we're now to the point where. 15 to 20 years ago, we were all foreign experts. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it's no coincidence that something called the F visa existed, where you didn't need to have any job at all. You could get a multiple entry, you know, six to 18 month visa for 200 quai from a guy in a street corner. And that visa evaporated really? five, 10 years ago. Yeah. The F visa no longer exists. Wow. It was the representative visa, and we were all on Fs. And then now where you have to be on a work visa or a tourist visa or, or a student or a teacher, but almost everyone's either work or tourist, right. you know, 90-some percent of the people here. Yeah. And that's just part of the economic development saying, okay, well, we wanted these guys here to help us, to, to get us to be not so homogenous, to get us to be part of the other countries and a mm. member of the global community. Now they're kind of at the point, okay, you guys have come here and – you know, we've gotten what we want out of you, and now it's time for, instead of you bringing all of your department managers from Germany for this manufacturing company, we want to put you in a situation where, you being a German company, we want to put you in a situation where it's more likely that you will acquiesce to having a Chinese person do that. Right. And that's been, you know, recently the foreign benefits. You know, we have to now pay into the big benefits scheme, and there aren't that many people that are going to be around for the retirement or right. the medical value of those benefits. Yeah. So most foreigners are like, oh, man, not only are, is their net salary going to be lower, but also the cost of the company is going to be higher. You know, yeah. people don't realize that when you're making, let's, you know, just for the sake of numbers, let's say you're making $10,000 U.S. a month, and you're going to take home 8000 but you're going to cost your company 13000 mm -hmm. So that's a big number. When you look over to the local market and say, okay, just your benefit scheme alone and your salary and your taxes, it's just a lot of companies that have a financial incentive. Yeah. I think that's just part of the deal. Yeah. Do you think the demographic of the expat community is changing? It's going toward like a younger, more creative-driven I think that people? happened a good like five to eight years ago. Right. I mean, also the cost of living here, I mean, everyone knows that's going up dramatically. So it wasn't like 10 years ago you come here and – you know, your savings from the U.S. or Europe, wherever you're coming from, could really stretch it out while you figure things out. I mean, now you got to hit the ground running and you better have some income coming in because rent and food and all that stuff is Clubbing. pretty expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Clubbing takes it out of you pretty quickly, yeah. You realize that fast. Um, but let's go – I want to go back to that for a second. Just because, you know, your story is you, you – I believe you came here to do your MBA or you were – you were here already and you started your MBA? Kind of. Um, the the bite-sized version would be that um, I met uh, a woman in Michigan in 1988. We were 15 years old and we started dating. And um, soon thereafter, my family moved to Europe and we kind of broke up. Mm -hmm. And then at college again, we met and started dating again. And then she immediately left for Asia. And so the first time I left for Europe and the second time she left for Asia, but the, different being, the difference being I followed her to Asia. Right. So she moved to Wuhan around 96. 
And uh, Wuhan was rough in 96. I, I mean, for a corner, there were like maybe eight people in a city of what, 20 million that were not Chinese. You know, and they were all a couple of teachers and one Citroen employee, one Budweiser employee. And, um, you know, I visited Wuhan and they, they, I always tell people I, I spent three months there one week. I mean, it, it was it was tough going. There were holes in the walls of her apartment, and birds were flying in, and we had these space heaters. Well, even and Shanghai in '96 would have been kind of well. Rough, I flew right? through Shanghai on my way out of my first trip, yeah. And I had a plane that got delayed, and I spent a night walking around, and you could just feel the energy. I mean, the construction cranes at that time. I bet people would say that a third of the world's construction cranes were in Shanghai, and I would have believed it. I mean, you could sit in any window and just count hundreds of cranes it was just nuts so you could feel there was going to be an energy and it was going to be something big so i went back home and i quit my job and i sold my car and i and i moved to shanghai and that was uh i can't remember around 97 right so you did the mba program and then as part well, of i worked first for the first of that shanghai right yeah right. the precursor to that did that for like a year or two and then mm-hmm. realized i really wanted to open my own business so i applied to Siebes, which was china europe international business school which is now in pudong right that's a year and a half program and during the middle of it there was an internship where you're supposed to go work for a big company but i lobbied the school and i'd written a business plan and raised some money from friends and family to do this business yeah and i heard the story you know in other interviews you've done the story as to why you did it you'd always uh, call a restaurant to see if you could get delivery, and they yeah. said, "No, we don't do it." But man, sure, there sure are a lot of you guys calling us to do it, right? And, so that's where the, and, the spark and came. And more from. so, all those restaurants were empty. I mean, literally around or late '90s, early 2000s. Unless it was Valentine's Day, you never needed a reservation to go to a nice non-Chinese restaurant. Right. You know, like Face, Lanatai, Hazara. That was the first for kind of really high, and it was just. I wouldn't say it was empty, but it just you, you would never need it. So the, you could see the excess capacity was there. Right. Now, uh, this is jumping around a bit. I'll get back to what you were saying in a sec. But has I don't want to forget this. In your opinion, has China gotten, or let's say Shanghai, because that's where you spend most of your time, has Shanghai gotten better in terms of quality of life than it was back in those times? Because I, I hear people go back and forth, the, the, the benefits of having developed and, you know, grocery store options and restaurants and stuff, but there's also some things that were left behind. So you know, that's, that's a question that the answer totally depends on who you are. Right, so for I you. I love the wild, wild west factor of China. I love the bizarreness. I love exploring. I love going weekend trips and getting out and finding places where people live in caves, you know, mm. and, and I love that part of it. So for me, the modern China relatively speaking, is a little bit dull. Right. You know, now it's just everything you want could be here. Uh-huh. So I kind of like the olden days, but I also kind of feel like my success is due to the fact that I came in the olden days. When I first arrived in Shanghai, literally any business you could do, you'd have to be a real moron to mess it up. There was just so much opportunity. People hadn't had experience yet building businesses. There was not nearly as much money in the market as there is right now. Right. So, I mean, if you wanted to open up a company to distribute golf carts and you'd be the first one mm-hmm. now there's probably a specific company that just does pink golf carts mm-hmm. so the the competition is just that that horizon is, is that landscape has totally changed and i liked the old days and right. i if i had a chance i'd definitely go back i mean you you have i don't want to say a common enemy but when you first meet foreigners here and you make your first non-chinese friends in the city mm-hmm. you band together you know, and, and you're, you're just this, the struggle of life. And it is so much 
more camaraderie then. And there were so few of us that you'd walk into any bar or restaurant and you'd, you'd recognize a third of the people. Right. So you had this real tight-knit, real rough community that was willing to take its punches. Where now, you know, it's the me, 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 millennial and everything. It's kind of like another in. big city, right? Yeah. Like you kind of see a foreigner on the street and you, you don't really talk, you don't look at them, that sort of thing. Yeah. Are there many of those left, the, the friends you made back then? It's funny that you mentioned that because last night, one of the restaurants that we worked with, uh, Ginger Cafe, they had their 10th anniversary. And I went there, and it feels like they only invited people that have been living here for 10 years. Yeah. So I got to see a lot of old faces. And so I'd say you know, a, a fifth of them are still around. The big exodus happened two years ago, where about a third of my friends all left about two years ago. And for any particular reason? You know, that was just the first year that people were saying, you know, the foreigners are going to start leaving and right. that it made it difficult to stay. And so there must be some kind of connection to that. Yeah. Do you think the Chinese attitude towards foreigners has changed over that time? Um, you know, I, I feel like I really want to help out with great, got a good canned answers, <laughs> but I have a problem with even saying, you know, the Chinese, you know, when you, when you're here and you start to learn the environment, the community, you stop looking at the big group and you start looking at the individuals. And to me, that depends. Are you a northerner? Are, there, are you a southerner? A Do you have older point, siblings? Yeah. You know, what's your educational background? Right. So I would say if you look at the um, the non-educated kind of frontline people in China with whom you interact on a daily kind of service basis. Yeah. So let's talk about um, – you know, the person on the street corner that waves the flag at you when you're trying to cross on your moped or whatever. Right, right. That person, that level of society, totally way more accepting of foreigners. Uh -huh. But if you were to go out to some really far away, tier three, maybe even tier four, if that exists, city, absolutely not. They're still going to stare at you and try to pull the hair on your arms. Yeah. So it depends who you are and where they are and all that. But overall, there's resentment in a lot of edges of society here, mm -hmm. and there's also a ton of acceptance in a lot of edges. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I, I think I'll consider that when I ask that question in the future because they are so you know, they are grouped together when these sort of questions are asked about the Chinese and their sentiment. Do you know the, the famous saying about how long you're here and how much you know? No. So they say that when you first arrived to China, you can write a book on it. Uh -huh. When you've been here a little while, you can write a chapter. When you've been here a really long time, you can write a paragraph. Right. The longer you stay, the really hard it is, the harder to it gets generalize to generalize everything. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so back to the story for Sherpas. I just want to finish this and then ask, actually, so it started in, in 1999, right? When was, how long did it take for Sherpas to become profitable? SARS. Profitable. SARS. 2000, was that 2003? Maybe 2002. I can't remember exactly. Right. But that was when we first... You know, our, our order page in our database, you know, we do 20, 25 orders a day. And I remember At that we, time. Yeah, it was during SARS that all of a sudden we actually had to use the scroll bar on our orders processed screen. Right. Because you, you couldn't see every single order on one page. And people just didn't want to leave their houses. Right. There was a lot of concern about picking the disease up out in public. Yeah. So that's kind of what – that was our catalyst. SARS went away, but sales kept growing. That introduced our service to people. And So then – whether it was 2002 or 2003, you guys ran for two to three, possibly four years, and things weren't super exciting or robust. I right? had a rough time. So tell me about. It. I want to. I want to um, know about that. So, like, how how did you uh, how did you keep going doing this dream of yours, this business of yours, when it wasn't clear that it was going to work or that it was working? Well, I had originally raised fifty thousand dollars in debt equity. So basically that meant is my friends and family loaned me money to start Sherpas. Right. And I blew through that in about 16, 18 months. And then the problems started. Mm -hmm. um, 
our business model is quite interesting because basically our customers finance our growth. So when you order Sherpas, cash is the overriding option that most people use. Mm-hmm. And you give that to us. And we basically hold that for a month. And then at the end of the month, we'll pay our employees their salaries and we'll pay our restaurant partners the cost of the food. So as long as we grow, we don't need money. And that's very, very different from your traditional buy and sell model. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in China working for a company in America and exporting to America and then they're putting in their warehouse and they're distributing it and then they're collecting 60 days later, when they grow, they need money. Mm -hmm. So if they stop growing, their old customers pay, but they don't have new bills to pay to the factories. So for us, we were growing, 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 and it was great getting that money in, but we were right on the edge. And I would say about two months after we lost... After we launched, um, which would have been around 01, I really hit a problem where I hit, I couldn't hit payroll for a month. Right. And I got the staff together, and we're very small. And I was like, listen, I understand if you guys want to leave, you know, the ones that do want to leave, I can pay you your salary right now, but I can't pay everybody. And I asked people to trust me and kind of stay with it. And I had a couple restaurants that I couldn't pay, and I chose the ones that I knew the best. And I said, listen, I can't pay you. You know, If you can just support me, nobody quit. No restaurants sued. I mean, we, we made it through it. But at that point in time, my stress levels were so high because I had, oh, my God, I'm going to owe. You know, at that point, that was $57,000, which to me was a ton of sure, money. Yeah. And I thought, how am I going to pay that back? I had nightmares every night about not being able to pay people. Um, I wake up and like my hair was falling out. My my fingernails even started having like a lot of problems. Just the stress level. Yeah. My diet was horrible because we had a, a really low end sushi restaurant that I won't name now, but they didn't have money, but they wanted to advertise with us, so they gave me coupons. Well, five R and B frozen sushi, the lowest of low, uh-huh. and I was eating twice a day just frozen low end sushi, and it was just a mess. But then luckily enough. I probably don't hear this phrase much. Luckily enough, SARS happened. <laughs> and we were able to rebound from it. But it, it was really rough. But yeah. it was during that low time that it really sharpened my edges as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I'm a very nice person, generally speaking. I, I want people to like me. And I, I have a hard time making the really hard decisions. And I had a general manager that I had known for almost uh, five years at that point, And I'd worked with her at our previous company. And she was like a mother to me. And, you know, she spoke six languages and she was a foodie and she was perfect to be the GM here. And she was going through a period where she might have had cancer. And I was supporting her during that she flew to the States and everything. And finally, one day I woke up and I said, if I keep supporting her and allowing her to be the general manager and paying her the salary and she was making some bad business decisions, I had wanted to fire her, but I felt like I couldn't because she was going through cancer. And I sucked it up and I made that call and it was the hardest call I've ever had to make while she was going through the pro- in the end, she didn't have cancer, but right. she thought she had it when I fired her, yeah. and that was tough. But that really pushed me to change as a person and start looking and being a little bit more hard edged. Yeah. Well, that's that's powerful. So, was it? What was it in those moments? Right, your hair is falling out, your health is deteriorating, things are up and down. I guess a little bit here. You know, you, you're having the payroll issues. Was it fear of not being able to? pay back you know the people that you've borrowed money from was it that you saw the light at the end of the the tunnel and that this you know this could be a success the people you were responsible for here like what i want to dig into a bit what made you keep going because a lot of people might just say you know what my china experiment didn't work (laughs) out i'm out if i threw in the towel i would have lost even more because i still would have owed the salaries and all the restaurants i needed tomorrow's money to pay yesterday's bill right so closing down would have been tripled how big the problem did you want to though like was part of you like you know what if i could end this on a Without a loss, if I could end this, you know, break even. I, I tried would. to sell my business to a Hong Kong-based uh, company, 
around that time. Right. And it was a ridiculously low price. And it was just enough to kind of get me out clean. Uh-huh. And um, they said no. Thank God. You know, <laughs> I got lucky on that one. I dodged a huge bullet there. But I, I, if anybody came in and offered me money, I would have given 90% of the business at that point. Right. But getting people to invest in a failing business is really hard. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's, I, I, mean, I wanted to ask because I think, again, going back to like today's entrepreneurial and startup culture, and I think this is somewhat true that things are happening more quickly and timelines are a bit condensed you know, with the advent of technology, depending on what industry you're in. But I, I, I do think there's kind of like a slight entitlement with a lot of young entrepreneurs that they want to get in and they want to verify and, and, and prove that this is a good business model and then just wait until it explodes, right? And I, li- I like speaking with people like yourself that have been doing it for 15 plus years and that had a lot of years in between where somehow you had to keep the faith, right? Where things may have not been going how you'd wanted, you want them to be going or you wanted them to be going lots of problems you know you mentioned your, your gm but still something or a number of different factors made you persist and then here well we are the today. one i had wanted to say when you were just speaking was um the everyone talks about this fear of failure and, and there is no real fear of failure it's fear fear of the repercussions of your failure right and for me it was you know we were putting down our roots in this in this community and in this in this city particularly and i didn't want to be labeled as a failure I didn't want to be labeled as someone that couldn't pay their staff. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be labeled as someone that couldn't pay the restaurants. So for me, it was just about getting over that hump. It wasn't. It, it was owing money to my family and friends. That was a big part of it. But I could have moved to another city and gotten rid of half of my concerns. My concerns were just being labeled a failure, being someone that can't succeed, and that was that was terrible for right. me. And so, in terms of advice or the way to approach like an entrepreneurial venture or something that you want to do, is that decision to just commit? regardless really important you know what i mean like how how should entrepreneurs looking to get into something that they're passionate about make that decision to commit okay you know? i i have a great answer for this one and this is something that i think a lot about i love talking about entrepreneurialism i love giving speeches on it and i always tell people if you have an idea please come see me i'm not going to invest in it but i'll talk to you about it i've been through the process i've written the business plans i've raised the money and what you said is key passion and that is the main thing. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, you must have triple on a ceteris paribus basis. All of the things being remaining equal. And if one person's passionate and the other's not, you're going to have three times the chance to succeed. And right. it, it's a passion for what you do. But more importantly, you need experience. And I'll take a, a person with passion. Sorry, not more important. Passion is more important than experience. Right. But experience is a very close number too. Yeah. If you're going to think about doing a business and you don't have any experience in it, you just think there's an opportunity, get an internship in that industry. You know, work for free for somebody to mm. learn the ropes because that is going to give you such a base to succeed. Right. Um, there, I mean, I, we had an intern here, and I hope that God Adam's not listening to this one. Um, <laughs> but he uh, he finished up his internship here, and he's a, a Western kid, and he came to see me kind of near the end. And he sat down. I said, okay, now I want to talk to you about my next venture. And I said, sure. You know, you've, you've busted your butt here for a while. I'd be happy to sit and talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I want to bring five-hour energy. Or is it called seven-hour energy? I think it's five-hour. Five. He's like, I want to bring. Little, little tiny vials. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm going to bring. This is, you know, five years ago, eight years ago. He's like, I want to bring five-hour energy to China. And he told me all the reasons. You know, people are going to need it. Stress levels are coming up. They're mm-hmm. going to be too tired. They currently nap after lunch. He made all these reasons for why he should do this. And I was like, great. Um, how much money do you have to invest in this? He goes, none at all. I said, okay, so um, 
Five Hour Energy is going to want you to pay them to have the distribution rights for Asia. Otherwise, you would just import it for a little while, be a little bit successful, and then someone's going to come in and be bigger than you and copy you that has better distribution and more money, or you're just going to fail. So either you're going to fail or you're going to be successful, which is going to lead to your ultimate failure. <laughs> you know, have you thought nice through Nice motivating that? advice. You know, and he's like, well, no. I was like, so you don't have anything. You have no experience in this industry. You've never done beverage or health product distribution. Mm -hmm. You have no money. All you've got is an idea. I said, I don't want to crush your dreams, but this is not going to work for you. You you have nothing but an idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a failure of our American system is we are so creative and we're so into intellectual property rights that a lot of times we're misled into thinking a great idea is worth something. And let's be honest, in, in this market, it, it really isn't. Nothing. You need something else on top of that. Right. Had he had experience or he had money at least or something, he could have done it. All, all he had was the passion, and that wasn't enough. How much more than that did you have when, when Sherpa started? Well, for me, I had a catering job in America right before I moved okay. here. Right. And so I had always wanted to do a catering company, but you need a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You need ovens. You need vehicles. And there were five-star restaurants that did catering, and there were restaurants – I'm sorry, five-star hotels that did catering. Mm-hmm. And then there were restaurants that on the weekend would try to get enough forks and spoons together to be able to do a catering, and there was nobody dedicated to do it. But right around that time, the, the party people launched, and uh, they had some Westerners that had gone and some Singaporeans that went and did a catering company. So I was like, all right, someone else is in that market. I'm not going to try to get into that. Right. But I would really, 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 really wanted to do it. And um, – this is kind of close to it. Right. So you had some food-related experience, right? So you weren't coming into this blind. You know, it's a, tr- it's a tricky thing because I think you're right. You know, so many people these days have these ideas. They can't get them out of their head. They're super passionate about them, and they want to act on them. But as you said, really there's nothing in their past history or experience that supports them in that in that action, right? They don't have any experience. They don't have the capital. They don't have whatever. But at the same time... There are those outliers that, you know, they, they have are, that and idea. And those are the ones that if you sit across from them and tell them how bad their idea and they're never going to succeed, it'll, f- it'll be more of an impetus for them to go and right. do it. They'll be motivated so you're, more. So you're helping them along. That's true. It's just the bottom of the tank that it's going to kind of get washed away in that depression of rejection. Right. And I suppose the person sitting on the opposite side of the desk that receives that advice from you, if they just, you know, if you say that advice and they say, yeah, you're right, okay, I won't do it, then... Not maybe not so committed or passionate in the first exactly. place, right? Um, I want to touch on you. You mentioned the kind of personal growth component when you were dealing with uh, early days in Sherpas, your GM who was thought she was going through cancer and the tough decisions you had to make there. The life of a, an entrepreneur is a very you know ups and downs, probably more stress than your average you know person working in society. Are there any things that stood out in terms of personal growth through this journey with Sherpas for you? Like, I'm sure there was a lot, but anything that stood out in terms of how you grew in different ways, how you developed as a person or your perspective on, on things that, that changed throughout the, the, the process? As my wife would verify, I'm not a very introspective person. I'm not very observant. Particularly That's probably why myself. you get things done. So I don't, I don't know a really answer that. I, I do feel like, as we already discussed, Forcing myself to, to fire that GM was a big personal growth moment for me. And I know it's hard to take such a, a possible negative thing and combine that with a firing and, and make it a positive thing. But that really taught me to grow up very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have like, that's my, my BC and AD. And, you know, there's before that decision and after that decision. Really? But other than that one brief 
you know moment of of like flipping a switch on me i i don't feel a lot of change you know i think that'd be better with someone like a manager here that's worked with me or my wife who's known me right. forever well how about this i mean the all of us are tested emotionally in in china right i mean i got spit on on my way over here right? <laughs> not so, by me for the record <laughs> so it's it's a kind of place that especially if you're an entrepreneur even if you're not but especially if you're an entrepreneur your buttons are going to be pressed right so i think if you're going to if you're going to succeed in china i think a certain amount of emotional maturity or a way of dealing with your emotions is required right so for sure how how have you leveraged um, or dealt with your emotions either in conflict or leveraged them to you know for whatever purpose yeah. uh, you had how how has that how have you done that? How have you dealt with that in well, China? I, I think a little background is necessary for the question you're asking because people who maybe haven't worked in, or known China for a while, um, exploding or blowing up emotionally is is almost never effective here. And, and most people would say, well, it's not effective anywhere. But here you get a nervous laughter when you do it. Mm -hmm. And that nervous laughter could be anything from like inside I'm literally cracking up at you to an almost crying inside and I want to help this person. And it, it doesn't go anywhere good. And I was fortunate enough to work for one of the, the legends of Shanghai, Mark Kiddo. And uh, he was my boss at that Shanghai, and he's written a couple books out there. And if you Google Google him, you'll, you'll read a lot about, it, about one of the first kind of path blazers in China. Uh -huh. And well, one of his faults was he was prone to emotional um, outbursts. Yeah. And I was able to see firsthand you know, the three or four times where I felt like he was completely over the top, getting emotional about stuff. And I was able to see the staff's reaction to that. So it wasn't like I read it in the business book and was able to put it into play. I had firsthand kind of experienced that. Right. And that's helped temper me a lot. And I was able to grow from, from that experience with him. So when those circumstances come up that you're feeling the bubbling up of frustration, anger, whatever, what do you... And I mean... <laughs> a little booze in the, in the under the drawer. Certainly, I think that's one of the reasons that alcohol is such a a dangerous component of living in Shanghai. Right. That a lot of our culture as Westerners, you have a bad day, you hit the happy hour. Yeah, and here it's happy hour every day, yeah. and bars don't close, and until there's booze 5 on every street corner, well, twenty four hours a day. Yeah, and yeah. so I think you know that's to those of you out there. I'm by no means saying <laughs> go booze up. But for me, being in my 20s, what a great outlet that, that can provide as long as you manage that, right. you know, that, that cliff. And it is a cliff. Yeah. We, you and I have both seen a lot of people here fall over that cliff oh, yeah. and become full-blown alcoholic yeah. and have to leave because they, it wrecked them. And money and everything else goes, goes down the drain with it. But there's something about having a bad day and hitting 10 friends out for a Chinese dinner and a bunch of beer. And, you know, you're all sitting there and it's, it's family style and it's yeah, just It's not so as fun. depressing here, right? I mean, it's not like you're going to an empty pub in upstate New York or wherever it or is, England you know, when, things, anywhere, yeah, when yeah. things are bad and you're just there with the bartender, like telling them all your, your woes. Like you said, you sit around a hot pot table and everyone's cheerfully drinking and exactly. eating food. It's very and, social. Right. Um, you know, the last point about that emotional thing, and I think you really hit it on the head because it's still fairly common here to see foreigners, you know, trip out, for lack of a better term, when things aren't going their way or when, you know, they're in conflict with uh, one of the locals. And if for no other reason than practically speaking, I don't think it's a good strategy to lose your shit and freak out because you will only get more enraged by their response. Like, as you were alluding to earlier, I mean, it's not like a typical 
you know, where we come from, if you get mad at someone, they're either going to cower or they're going to get mad back at you. And you pretty much know where you stand. But here so often, you know, people will be smiling and laughing when what, what you think are unfortunate events happening. Maybe there's an accident or maybe you, you know, broke your leg or something or someone spits on you or wh whatever the case may be. If you, and you see this all the time here, you, if, they, if, if a foreigner gets angry at that, at, at that person who's done whatever it is. Outwardly angry. Outwardly angry. The response that they get just makes them go yep. even over and the it's top. it's always an uncomfortable it's laugh. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, the way I compare getting angry to, it's imagine if a guy walked in here in a clown suit and started throwing ping pong balls. That's kind of what blowing up emotionally and angrily is because it just never happens. Right. So you kind of, you know, a guy comes in and starts chucking ping pong balls around in your office and, and you're going to have a little bit of a nervous kind of laugh. And right. that's their response to these over-the-top emotional outbursts that yeah. some people are prone to. Yeah. Um, but back, so back to the Sherpa story, I want to kind of take it full circle because as we talked about before, the, f the food, food and technology are starting to really come together. There's lots of new services here in China. Ulama is just, you know, it seems like every week you hear of a funding round they received and the valuation over a billion dollars and all this kind of stuff and others like it. So how does Sherpas fit into that? like picture the landscape currently and food delivery in China. And we were talking before about some of the things you guys are doing to deliver an even better service, both to the customers and to the, the, the vendors, the restaurants you guys are working with. What, what's, how has the dynamic changed even over the last couple of years? Well, I'd love to that? tackle the first part of that. Um, a, a little bit of background in our industry is um, a company called Seamless Web launched in New York City. I'm going to call it 10 years ago. I don't know exactly what it was. But that was kind of America's first experience with a big national player in this market. Another one came out, um, I think it was based out of Chicago, called Grubhub. Mm -hmm. And the two of those got to be the big players. They're slightly different than us in that they don't do the delivery. They're more marketing and they're, they're aggregators. Mm -hmm. And they rely on the restaurant to deliver. But from the customer standpoint, it's pretty much one and the same, what we do and what they do. Well, Seamless and Grub... They merged and went public, and that happened just a couple of years ago. And when they got the war chest of money after going public, everyone kind of realizes they need to give investors a return on that cash that they raised. Mm -hmm. So everyone realizes they're going to kind of buckle down in the States and get their stuff right and then go into big international expansion. So everybody globally, all of our ears perked up. We are a lot of very small independent players right up until about two years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, there was maybe in Asia, I'm going to call us, about 12 of us that were doing this. We were one of the bigger ones, um, if not the biggest. And in the last two years, as everybody realized that Seamless and Grub are probably going to go internationally, these big players, and you, you brought up Olama, and there's also Baidu, and there's also Dianping. Mm -hmm. All these Chinese players got into food delivery, but they got into it in a very different way. To them, success is market growth. Their eye is on the ultimate acquisition, or possibly public, but most likely acquisition, by the big dominant players in America, or maybe Europe, coming in and buying and partnering with them. Right. So they want to be the biggest, and they want to be the best, and they are throwing tons of money at the market right now. None of those guys are profitable. Right. If you were to, to add up their collective losses, um, I'm kind of talking out, out my ear here because I don't really know exactly, but it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's well over a billion dollars a year that they're losing. Wow. You know, and so they don't call it losing. They call it investing, and they call it expanding their runway You know, and all these terms. Right. So for them, success is just being the only one standing at the end. Use your war chest of money to put everyone else out of business and be the biggest so that eventually you can either go public or get bought. Whereas on, on my level, you know, we're doing 3,000 deliveries a day. 
I don't know what Ilma's at, but I would say they're around 200,000 deliveries a day. So we are not even a fly on their shoulder. We're a molecule. They're at 200. I'm guessing. Nationally, that. right? Yeah, nationally. Right. But they're, they're so big. And if you were to Google it, you would see the scale that we're at and the scale they're at. But I don't consider them successful because I, you know, when I started this business, I had no board. I didn't have investors. I had a loan. Uh-huh. I, had, I don't have any partners. You know, it was just me. And it's like, I need money. I need to live. Yeah. So we built this business around making a profit. It's not a much of a profit. As I told you today, mm-hmm. we're between one and two RMB per order of profit when, yeah. when everything goes right. So it's, it's a thin margin, but we're able to use our scale to kind of make that into something manageable by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. And I got a kid and we got school bills and I have plane, airplanes I got to catch. So for me, it was always like we need to make the money. Right. So that's why we're relatively small comparatively. And what what is the end game for? Let's take Ulama as an example. Many others similar to them, but you know they're this tremendous growth fueled by raising capital and different funding rounds, et cetera. You you mentioned they want to be a you know potentially one of their goals is to be acquired by a global dominant player, but from maybe even from the the acquirer's point of view. What is their interest in acquiring something like Ulama in a couple of years? Well, that's that's an interesting point. These big Chinese players right now. Because they're, they're not profitable. They're, oh, they're, they're not... loss leaders. Right. But that's not always going to happen. So right now, the recipients of this generosity of the venture capitals is all going – the generosity is all going straight to the users. Right. So you get people – you can order Starbucks – Buy a Chinese food delivery company, get it delivered to your office, net total, including the delivery fee and the amount, for cheaper than it is to just walk in the store and buy it. And these companies won't even have a contract with Starbucks. They're walking in and paying cash in a retail way. Right. And their investors love that. They're just trying to get users. They're getting right? market share. They're getting users and everything. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, one day, that's going to stop. So let's just say Olama's the last one standing. Mm-hmm. Let's say Baidu and Dianping both fold. And Olama's able to absorb their staff and absorb their... Um, restaurants and everything. So now Olama's all of a sudden standing. The first thing that's going to happen, they're going to jack up their delivery fee. They're going to jack up the commission they take from restaurants. They're going to be the only dominant player in the market. And in a very short time, they'll just do an elbow bend and they'll be profitable. Yeah. They can't do it right now, though, because if they try to do that, then Baidu and Dianping are going to put them out of business. It's a big bet. It's, it's, it seems like it a is. dangerous game. Yeah. But they're, were... they're so far down the path. What is their choice? Oh, yeah. They have no choice now, yeah. right? But you were here during the Groupon days yeah. right that, I never which is now a case study a in most thing. university uh, business school textbooks but i you know i feel like this maybe it's the second wave of the tech boom in china or maybe it's the first whatever your perspective is but you've got companies like we just mentioned you've got the dd quaidis and lots of really interesting homegrown chinese companies which you could make the case are raising a lot of money you know, irrespective of their fundamentals, and it's a it's a risky game, and you know there may or may not be winners in that game. But I bring up Groupon just because I want to get your perspective on you know the Uber DD QuaD saga is something that's I'm fascinated with these days because you've been here for so long, you you, you understand the Chinese market incredibly well at this point. But I feel like the the danger of things like people companies like Groupon, maybe now Uber. They're making huge bets on China, right? They're coming in with a lot of capital, and they're, they're basically saying, we're, we're, we're going to fight this fight. So Uber versus Didi Kwaidi. And I think recently they said they're going to allocate a billion dollars to doing that. And like you said— I mean Didi Dacho, right? Because the, they're, there's they two merged. parts of Uber. They merged. Oh, they did? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and like you said with the, the Ulama and the Starbucks— 
Uber is offering, you know, both of them are, are fighting each other tooth and nail with their pricing, right? So you can get a, an Uber from here to Pudong for like 12 RMB sometimes. My last night one was 17. I was applied some 50% it's discount, crazy, but I right? didn't even know I, I was Me getting. neither. I, I go to pay and they're like, hey, 50% off. And I'm that's fantastic, right? So they're obviously trying to build that market and have that fight. But from, from your perspective, having seen in, in multinational companies come in and, and leave and, you know, you know, everyone wants a piece of the Chinese market, but then for whatever reason, they can't hack it. What, what is your take on that approach, you know, of these big companies trying to come in, muscle their way in? Do you think it's possible for big foreign companies to be successful here when there's a homegrown challenger of the same scale? Wow. That is a really tough question. Um, I feel like there are so many variables on both sides of that equation that if just a few of them flip one way or the other, it can change the balance of the result. You know, like, it's it's so complicated to say that. Right. You could look at the Baidu-Google, mm-hmm. you know, or, or whether it's Twitter and Weibo, you know, and, like, I look at those, and I got to say, half of me kind of says, good on you, China. Yeah. You know, you, you have, you've, you're suffering in the short term. People find it more uncomfortable to live here. Chinese people leave. They get Facebook. They come back, and it's not here. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, yeah, there's a short-term problem. But in the long run, I mean, what did Alibaba just buy? Um, who was it that they just bought recently? Was it, it wasn't Yoku. Yeah. Um, Yoku Tudo? Yeah, they bought, they bought the, the video company, right? They bought Baidu. Uh, yeah, there was a Yoku. I can't remember. Yeah. This is just in the news, and I read They're it. They're buying a lot of stuff at the moment. You know, yeah. and they paid you know, billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. Well, had China never been able to keep those Western players out of the market, that market value would have been a minuscule oh, yeah. compared to today. Yeah. So, and then they get a tax bonus from that, and then Chinese people get rich from that. So it's kind of a good thing in a sense, yeah. but it's a bad think, thing in terms of global capitalism right. and open markets. I don't think that's by mistake either. I think the policy here is in very much in support of the homegrown domestic companies, yeah. tech companies or not, right? But I, I share your your view. I mean, I think, I I think the Chinese are increasingly building really great companies, and obviously they have a huge domestic market. They don't even need to look outside of it initially. I mean, if you're in the UK with a startup, if you're in Tel Aviv and you're doing a startup, I mean, your initial strategy might have to include Greater Europe or or other markets. We're here. You nail it, and you've got an extremely homogenous market with increasingly uh, large disposable income, and and you can become a dominant player just here, and then of course whatever you decide yeah. to do outside of China after that. WeChat, whatever. perfect example. What's right? going to happen with that? I now you know, like you said before, I'm I'm about half the time in California and half the time here, and when I go to California, you preaching the gospel. I have an Android phone now, uh-huh. and the only reason I have an Android phone is because it can take two SIM cards. So I have my yeah. Chinese SIM card and my U.S. SIM card in one phone. Mm-hmm. If I was an Apple, I'd have to have two phones. Yeah. So I switch over. And now people in America, they text message. And they do text message groups. But since I'm Android and I can't join the Apple group, I get individual text messages from different people. And they're, they're in a group. So they'll see the six people in the group and what Bob says and what Mike right. says and what I say. So they see it kind of like WeChat. And I don't. And that's a problem I never would have noticed living here. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I'm like, wow, you know, WeChat's great because, as you know, everybody's got it here. Oh, yeah. And w- can you imagine a person without WeChat? No. I couldn't either. Just, <laughs> wow. Grand- grandparents, mothers, four-year-olds, everybody has it, right? Yeah. And then you go to the States and there is no WeChat. You kind of have the WhatsApp, but not everyone's kind of using it. But it's better, isn't it? What, what do you, you think? Well, I think – What's we- the it? 
WeChat. Oh, I, mean, I geez, think that's great. I mean, you, you look at the way, and this is kind of my point that these homegrown companies, and yes, there's some, there's co- some copying, et cetera. Why wouldn't there be? They're taking the best a- attributes of, of stuff from around the world. But, you know, they, 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 they iterate so quickly. You know, they, WeChat, look at the evolution of WeChat and what it does. I mean, you pay your bills, you do banking, you do investment, yeah. you do anything. Um, it seems to happen so quickly, and peep the adoption rate here seems to be so quickly. Like they release a function, six hundred million people use it. Um, but you know, think of that number. It's crazy, right? Whereas in in the West, like you mentioned, we still have there's separate entities like WhatsApp. It's a, it's a messaging app. It got so, Facebook bought it for nineteen billion dollars, and I, and if you compare Shut that up. to it was to, that much, yeah. And if you compare that to WeChat, you're like, well, it's just one tiny function of WeChat. So here's your chance to be you a visionary. Know? What is WeChat's market value if that gets bought oh, or sold the next year? Or I two? think that's a big question. Nobody knows. I mean, Tencent's sitting on that golden goose, but I'm, it has to be enormous, right? I mean, I don't. Could you even buy that? Is there any company in the world that could buy Apple? that right now? Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But but my point is, I think that. The domestic market, I mean, I think for whatever reason, they favor their, their homegrown thing. Maybe it's because it's designed with their mentality more in mind. And, you know, of course, if you have a team of Chinese developers Tax developing revenue. something versus, uh, you know, Silicon Valley people for the Chinese market, more than likely the Chinese developers are going to nail it on the head for, the, for their own And there's their probably market. a social control component. Right, right. So long-winded way of saying, and you, I don't know if you answered this already, but do no, you think do, do you think companies do like Uber oh. are just throwing you know good money after bad and at some point in the in the future they're going to be uh, say you know what we you know we're out we're we're gonna ha- or, or we're gonna have to acquire our way in or, or whatever it is. Damn you for bringing that back. <laughs> I don't even want to answer that. I just I don't know. I forty percent of me says yes, forty says no, and the other twenty is dizzy and confused. Yeah. So I I, I just don't know. I mean. Ken, I, I keep going back to I, I was fortunate enough to get invo- invited to a Fortune conference way back in the, in the 90s and um, in, in Hong Kong, and I was able to attend a breakout session, and one of the guys from GE was there. It was Jack Welch was there, but it was, he was his number two. And in our breakout session, you know, there were only like 30 of us, and I got to sat with the global. I don't know if he was the CFO or what he was. And he told us the story about a light bulb factory that they had, and they had it somewhere, I'm going to say Hangzhou, but I can't remember where it was. And this light bulb factory was making GE light bulbs. And all of a sudden, one day, every single staff had quit and gone across the street. The government was basically just viewing how to make those kind of light bulbs Mm -hmm. and supporting them while they did it. And meanwhile, all the management was already building a factory across the street. GE knew there was a factory in a construction across the street, didn't know what it was, but it was just a play to bring them in and do the bait and switch or whatever you want to say. And I just, looking at it, I would be so angry <laughs> i would never do another tiny bit of business in china yeah. but i mean they were importing from america into china these huge turbines for power electricity development and mm-hmm. you know they couldn't leave the china market and so it's just it's just you take your lumps yeah you know and you, you try to be smart about it but it, it's gonna happen and if you can get through those lumps you can be successful right you know uh, amway is another great example that's just a close to my heart because they're from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'm from. Is that the nutritional products? Yeah, thing? it's it's one of the um, – how to describe Amway's tough. <laughs> but basically they um, – what's that kind of sales called? The, the bad way of saying it's pyramid sales. Pyramid scheme. Oh, like, like network marketing Yeah, network marketing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would say the majority of their global profit comes from China. Mm-hmm. Or Yum, look how profitable Yum China is. So you get these big plays. But from the Internet standpoint – 
It's tough, right? I have to say, my 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 take on it is these like once in a lifetime Silicon Valley billionaire entrepreneurs like Travis, whatever his name in from from Uber, from Uber and, and everyone else. I mean, I don't think you can tell them you can't go into there. I mean, they're what the attitude that got them to where they are, I think they think global and they're gonna try to make that happen. They put a lot of capital behind that and I don't think you can get them to say no. But from my time in China, I also think China, uniquely from probably every other country that I can think of, wants, ultimately has the ambition to do it themselves, for themselves. You know, China wants China's version of everything. And like you said, yes, of course, in the years where they didn't have the expertise or the experience, they brought it in. They played the game when, when they had to. As soon as they can do it themselves, I think they do that. You know, and I don't know how you how you can compete with that process. Yeah. I mean, they're so entrepreneurial. They obviously have a lot of capital behind them now. They're not too scrupulous mm. about borrowing they'll let, certain they'll things. They'll let from. a few ones succeed. You know, one well, of the things that I would... KFC. I mean, that's very But unique. that's not a pure... You're talking about pure internet place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what, what I, what I think is going to happen is I would compare big tech companies succeeding in China to like the NBA or the NFL draft. A lot of times, these, these organizations that draft a player are based on their potential upside. Mm -hmm. It's clear they're picking someone who's not as good as the next guy that someone else is going to pick. Right. But they're saying, you have the potential to be bigger. So we're basically valuing upside more than the current market. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what's happening here with an Uber. They're looking and saying, okay, we can throw $200 million in this market and have a 20% chance of being worth $5 billion. Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think they're kind of saying, if this is going to be big, it's going to be freaking huge. Yeah. Or you know, we we did our best and we tried and we failed. Yeah. You could be right. That's an that's an interesting take. But it's just it seems overwhelming that, you know, if you're in Spain, you use Facebook. Yeah. You know, whatever. People, entrepreneurs in Spain aren't too fussed about using an American social media, or whatever. But it seems in China, it's always no. We want to, and of course, it's been blocked, so it's not a fair game, as you said. Well, but, Chinese people outside China are probably some of the biggest users of all of this stuff. Yeah, but it's just, uh, they just, I, it really seems like they want to create their own. And with examples like WeChat, I mean, before that, I was not so hot on any of the social media options here. But WeChat, you got to hand it to them. I mean, they're creating a platform that does everything, really. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I asked you before the show, a couple of questions. And one was, how often do you network? You know, and when you come to China, especially entrepreneurs, they're encouraged to meet as many people as you can, shake hands, exchange cards, you know, make yourself known in the industry because obviously that makes things easier. Um, but I asked you, kind of expecting you to say, well, I don't network. I mean, I, you know, I've made my money. I've established my business. I just want to spend time with my family or whatever. But you said you network about once a week. Mm -hmm. Why do you network at this I'm point? I'm in a different situation. With my, uh, my time in China is about half of what it used to be. Right. So when I was living here and I had a family and everything, I never really saw a big value to networking. I'd rather be home for, for dinner and all that. Sure. But now that I'm, I'm spending more time away, I find a value in being here and just, you know, the, a lot of rumors can build. Oh, I heard you were on the way out and your business is going to collapse or something. And that's not the case at all. Right. So I just find it important to kind of get out and talk to people about it and, you know, let see my Set face. Set the record straight. But also, 
now that my family's not here and I get done with work, I don't really want to just go up to my apartment and watch TV. You right. know, I find it just more interesting just to be out and do stuff. You know, sure. last night, like I said, was that 10th year anniversary of Ginger. Tonight's a 10 year anniversary of, of Naked, who's a big uh, oh, really? resort player out in the Mogunshan cool. area. They've been around for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Wow, nice. Yeah, so I just I love doing that stuff now. Now that I'm right, here. So, so it's, it's not specifically to do anything greater with Sherpas or anything other than. Oh maintain the narrative yeah. but i think i think the earlier you are in your career by far the, the, the more you should get important. out there oh by far yeah i think also i think giving it some thought is also really important you know a lot of people will just say okay there's a meet up here there's a meet up there and they'll go they'll bounce around the room and try to swap cards and stuff and i don't really feel like that's a hugely effective strategy i mean you might increase your wechat or your rolodex or whatever by a couple hundred people every month but are those people that you can connect with? Are they people that you can lean on for advice or for help or for whatever? You know, that's yeah. that's well, what I... I think networking is kind of like that tree where you go to that event, you collect 30 name cards, you get rid of 25 of them, you think of the other five, and you call each person and say, hey, listen, right. I want to come and just talk to you for half an hour about this, this, and this. They come and they get the face-to-face, and then every three to six months, they're emailing you a quick update about what they're doing and where they are, mm-hmm. and eventually, you know, when they're looking for a job or for funding or advice, that's when they come in. It's like, well, yeah, I feel like I know you. And well, I think that's the that's the way to network, and yeah. it's it's tough because there are times when these guys will send me an email or something, and I'm really specifically thinking of two people who are I'm I'm right in the middle of of their networking, and literally like every three months I can tell their calendar thing's gone off, right? And they're and they're getting in touch with me, but I do feel like if either of those individuals was in a place where they needed help and it was easy help that I could provide, I probably would. Yeah. Although I've never gone to dinner with either of them. You know, I met them both face to face for fifteen. But they're 20 minutes. staying relevant in your life. They're yep. saying I'm still here. And yep. have they asked you for anything? No. Well, I mean, both have asked for a job, but it, what, it wasn't a job that I could provide right, right. them with. Do people hit? I mean, you're a fairly well known entrepreneur in Shanghai and China at this point. Do people hit you up for angel investing? For you know, all I'm pretty, sorts of advice. I'm generally or pretty clear when I talk to somebody. I'm not going to invest. Right. So you don't, you don't do any angel to introduce you to people. I love hearing about new ideas. I love giving my feedback on those ideas, particularly with Siebes, my old grad school. Yeah. I'm quite connected to them. And when people do something, I think a lot of professors will say, oh, you know, go talk to Mark. And I've mentored three groups through their process of trying to build a business. And, and I love that. Right. So I'm quite in touch with that. But I, I'm always very clear from the beginning, don't. Don't. This is a personal relationship we're going to have. Right. Where I'm happy to mentor and give feedback, but I'm not going to invest in your company. I've, and is there a reason why you stay away from the investment market? Well, I just feel like I've got enough at stake in China. Mm-hmm. I think it's time to, for me to diversify. Right. You know, I have 99.9999% of everything I have is in China. Right. So it's kind of so you want to take more risk here. Else. Yeah. Right. Plus, I don't really have a lot of money. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is just a different market. Right. You know, in the old days, five thousand, ten thousand dollars could make a difference. Now it's now it's it's, it's pretty it's, froth. it's pretty frothy as they say. Um, so among these entrepreneurs that you're speaking to that are hitting you up for advice, you know, you, I'm sure you've consulted with a number of them throughout the years. What what do you notice as like a negative attribute attribute that you see in them that like as to why they might fail in China or maybe you've observed people failing in China. Are you talking more about Chinese entrepreneurs or foreign entrepreneurs? No, foreign entrepreneurs. Like why do they fail in in their endeavors here? A lot of short-sightedness. A lot of like one overriding – two, I'm going to give you two examples. Overriding mistakes that people make here when doing a business. The first one is when they make their business plan, they don't put contingencies in it. They they do a conservative and an aggressive, but – 
no one ever walks into my office and says, hey, boss, I just found 800,000 RMB in an envelope under my desk. Here you go. But bad things happen. Uh-huh. Hey, boss, this guy just ran into this wall and needs this health bill. And this government bureau is giving us this fine. And our tax just went up another 0.3%. And there's all these bad things that happen. But people don't build that into their plan. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can always take the aggressive and just throw that out the window and, and look at the conservative. Right. But you're like, okay, you are pretty sure that you're going to need 10, you know, uh, these are low numbers, but just to make the example easy. So $10,000 to start your business and then another $10,000 in initial losses. And you're only asking for twenty grand. What are you going to do when those rosses run out and you've you made a mistake? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go out and get more money. Well, people don't want to invest money in a failing business. Right, right. So you've already given away forty nine percent to your first investor. Now you're giving it away. You, you know that investor gave you twenty thousand dollars for forty nine percent. You're going to need another ten thousand dollars. You're going to have to give up forty percent for ten thousand because your your company's not doing well and they're going to want more percent for their dollar. Mm-hmm. So now you're going to have eleven percent of your business. And is that going to motivate you to make it succeed? And you're just going to kind of walk away from it. A lot of people make that mistake. And I think that the second one, um, a lot of people confuse English skills with intelligence in the Chinese community. So I know a lot of people have chosen really poor partners and really poor managers because that person speaks great English. Mm -hmm. And they're unable to kind of get it out of their head that that's just one quality a person can have and it's irrespective well, I mean, there's a positive correlation, but it right. doesn't necessarily mean that's the smartest person that I can possibly team up with. Yeah. And I, I see that mistake being made over and over, and it's it's a terrible mistake. There are some great people here that just don't speak English, yeah. and you have to find a way to work with them or learn Chinese or get a translator. Right. So, And, and third tip, learn Chinese, right? If you want to be an entrepreneur here, if you want to get involved and at least be chipping away well, at can it, Can you right? imagine going to America for – I mean, how long have you been here? I'm sh- I don't really want to tell you, but four and a half years. <laughs> okay, so you've been here almost five years. So yeah. can you imagine going to America as an immigrant yeah. for five years and having your English be so poor you definitely couldn't watch TV? Right. You can kind of order something in a restaurant, but, but only if it's written in your native language. You know, like yeah. that is so messed up. But people come here and think that's the norm. Yeah. And you, you can put yourself in such a more advantageous position by – by just trying, and it's a word a day. You do a word a day in five years, you're f- completely fluent. Yeah. There's only five thousand functional words in Chinese. That's what start- you'd be at five thousand. That's what started me off, you know. And I didn't when I was first working here. It was all English, right? So I thought, oh, I don't need it for work, and you can get by with sherpas and you know girlfriends or whatever without it. Um, but then when I came back in 2014, I thought, like you just said, I don't have. I don't know if I can bite off a huge chunk and say, I'm going to learn Chinese. But if I just do a tiny bit every day, one word, maybe two words, it accumulates over time. And that's what's begun to happen. And before you know it, you can, you can read 500 words, which means you can start reading some you know, graded readers or some books and things start yep. to happen. That's where so I'm right at right now. Take the long haul perspective here. You're not going to come into China in three years, five years, hit it big and leave. Right. I've been here for almost 20 years. But do you get a lot of that? I've got a lot of friends you that must have left China that. with their tails between their legs and very few who have left with a fat checkbook. Right. And is that primarily because, you know, they haven't managed their own expectations or they had false expectations, they didn't learn the language, they had rosier, uh, you know, uh, projections than... Perhaps we're it's hard to be override, you know, an overall reason true. for success. But I you would don't like say to generalize. I, a, I like that. A, uh, uh, it's very common to see a series of bad decisions directly relate to 
failure. You know, like it's it's very rarely one thing. Right. It's usually two or three or four things, and it's never some external influence. It's almost always you just made some bad decisions. Right. You know, um, one thing that I, I I mean I think I said this in the survey that you sent me before we sat down. The bonus thing, the last box of the survey was all right. Your survey's done, and now just tell me one overriding thing. And I wrote, you can't do a good deal with the bad guy. Yeah, I you that just name. can't. And a lot of people, I don't like that person, but their distribution muscle is so strong. Right. I don't really want to go to dinner that with that person. Well, it's really hard to to be successful in any kind of business dealing with someone you just don't like. Right. You don't you don't want to see them and they leave a bad taste in your mouth. And more prone to conflict, that. more prone to distrust, more prone to... And your first impression is a very powerful tool. I mean, as human beings, right. that's something that we've developed over 50,000 years, and it's pretty good. Yeah. When you first meet someone you don't like them, is what, a one in ten chance that eventually you're going to like them? Yeah. And it's not, very, it's not very common that, well, I didn't like you at all at the beginning, but now I like you. Yeah. You know, if you're a quiet, introspective person and this person's an obnoxious, outward asshole... You know, that's not for you. Mm-hmm. I like obnoxious, outward assholes. <laughs> so I'll partner up with you in a heartbeat, yeah. and then we're going to do something good together. Yeah. And I think a lot of people really, they get in the bed with the wrong investors. Mm-hmm. They get in the bed with the wrong government partners. They make the mistake of thinking good English speakers are smart. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't take a long, they don't take a, a long-term vision of what can happen, and they're very short-term. Yeah. Just, just bad decisions on top of bad decisions. I think that's awesome and extremely simple advice. You know, because like you said it perfectly, whether it's government people, whether it's a distribution partner that could see you in every 7-Eleven store in China, which, you know, if you're trying to sell a food product, a snack, you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is phenomenal. But I, I do think it's it's great advice that if you don't if you don't vibe with that person, if you don't if you can't see yourself calling them up, you know, every day for a month at a time saying, what about this? What about this? Then, you know, maybe it's best to stay away because you're probably saving yourself heartache or yeah. trouble down the road. But one of the other things you just mentioned that uh, I want to get your take on. I know you don't do any investing, but you said that people usually have a rosier view of how things are going to go. And especially in China, that rosy view is probably even more uh, misplaced. You mentioned that early years of Sherpas, we talked about this before, things were tough, hair falling out, diet was terrible, stress out the wazoo. I, I, I have been attending some pitches lately i go to some of the accelerator events here and stuff like that those are cool you see yeah uh, i love what's happening and i I can't blame them either way but i'm just going to share with you something that i I kind of thought was amusing recently you know you have these these intelligent people and they've been working hard at their project and they pitch these great companies and it all sounds fantastic and say we're gonna the next six months we're gonna increase our user base by 100 percent and you know then we're gonna secure 250k funding and it's off to the races from there. I was thinking, I can't remember who, who was pitching, but I would love it if someone got up there on the stage and they said what they did. You know, we worked out, we put this platform together, but it is going to be a fucking dogfight to have this survive. I am willing to go through that. That's why I'm here. You in front saw of you somebody today. say that? No, no, no. Oh. I'm saying I would love. It would be so refreshing because everyone paints these these rosy pictures, and within a couple of years, they're going to be 10 million users and 50 million in revenue. But I, but that's never, ever, ever the case, right? Yeah. The case is once you get that money. Well, first of all, you're going to be stressed to the nines getting that money if you get it. But if you get it, you're going to be dealing constantly day to day conflicts at work, 
trying to grow at the rate that you, you know, you're projecting, trying to stay in business, dealing with, you know, your relationships in your personal life falling apart, your health deteriorating. I'd love for someone to get up and say, like, articulate that and say, this isn't going to be like a nice, happy ride. You know, it's going to be hell. I'm going to, I'm going to go through the ringer, but listen, I'm committed to doing that for this project. That would make me be like, all right, well, well, how yeah. much do you want? I'm, you know, I don't have I've much. I've but... had this very similar conversation with someone about hiring employees. Mm-hmm. You know, we're there's something that we're going through where we're hiring a high level manager that I don't want to get into too much about. Mm-hmm. But one of the things of all the people I talked to, and I've done, you know, about a dozen pretty high level interviews recently, and I've never had someone just say, "I will do everything I can do to make this succeed." Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've never had someone say, "Listen, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids." My parents are living, you know, up in Shandong province. Right. You've got me, and I will be here 12 hours a day for the first year to really get this where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking someone to dedicate their whole life and throw it out the window, but I've just never had somebody come in and just do like what you're saying. Say, I will fight tooth and nail. I will not accept failure. Mm-hmm. I will be your person. You're hired. I mean, that, yeah. that would be... Awesome. Did someone say that recently? Nope. No. No, but I was talking to somebody else about uh, why doesn't that happen. Yeah. I kind of feel like because in the older days of the 60s or whenever manly men or you know society was different, that would have been more of a thing. But now it's like, well, I think this would be a good business idea for you guys to do, so hire me. I have a great idea. Right. And it's but, like, well, an idea is like an asshole. What? Everyone's got them. You know? <laughs> Most of them stink. But it, it, don't you think it's the case that – and you do a tremendous number of interviews, I presume, over the years, have done – but, you know, people come in and they'll give you the business school spiel. You know, they'll talk about, you know, different campaigns they can do for you. And they'll talk about who they know. Yeah, they'll talk about who they know. And they'll maybe come off as a, a, a bit entitled, like, this is why you should want me and all this kind of stuff. But whether, and, and I never thought of it from your perspective, but for hiring, it certainly makes sense, too. But it's but, the same thing. Hiring yeah. someone or investing in a project. Right? It's, it's the it's same. It's a commitment of resources but, to but, them. But, don't you think, I mean, how compelling would it be? Everything else has to be there. The project has to be sound, you know, all the financial well, stuff has to be there. if I'm ever interviewing, that's how I'm going to be. <laughs> I know I've been on the other side of the table. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I just can't imagine a bad reaction from the, the investment crowd if someone did that. You know, they, 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 they put it out there and then they said, I've cleared, you know, I, I'm ready yeah. for a dogfight. This is going to suck. You don't want to be me in what's going to happen here. <laughs> Right, but I'm gonna work for you if God, you, you invest sure in this project. Someone did that, right? Didn't they? Wow. Um, we talked about success a bit. Obviously, you've experienced a level of success through your experience here with Sherpas. But I wanted to know how you define success, because it's easy Ooh, from an outside perspective one. to say, "Oh yeah, he made some money, okay. he sold out. Now he's living the life in the U.S. or whatever." But what what is success for you? Success as an entrepreneur gets you to the point where you can work twenty hours a week and manage a massively fast-growing, profitable company. That's it. That's the whole thing. Is when you realize, not just realize, but you realize that you're one person. How much are you really going to get done? What you need to do is you need to get the people around you, the talented management group that you've put together, mm-hmm. you need to make them better. You need to support them and manage them and get as much as you can out of them. And you're able to do that to the point where you can step back and go, okay, I've motivated these guys to the point where they're really getting great stuff done. I can't ask them to get any more done. I don't need to do a whole lot. So you can kind of step back a little bit. And that's going to be a lot of people are going to look and they go, well, that's, that's lazy. Mm-hmm. That's not what an entrepreneur should be about. Whether it is or not, that is success. You can choose to take that other 20 hours into another business, mm-hmm. but you're an entrepreneur. You shouldn't be running a big company. 
You know, I got 450 employees here. That is, is not what I should be doing. Right. I don't know management metrics, and I'm not a big Excel budget manager. Uh-huh. My management style is still just to walk around, how you doing? You know, you cut your hair. I see you brought your lunch to work. Does that mean your dad's traveling? You know, like, mm-hmm. and to just show that personal investment. And that that's all that I need to do right now. So for me, I would say that happened five years ago. Mm-hmm. Or was like, and our company has a lot of problems. There's a lot of Sherpa users who are going to be listening to this and ticked off about our, our policies and slow deliveries and bad service in the call center. We have every problem that every company has without a doubt. Mm-hmm. But internally... The fact that I don't need to be doing everything. My phone doesn't ring at night when I'm not here. You know, they're all empowered to do what they need to do. No one calls me and says, I got this problem. Help me solve it. That's not what I do. What I do is I listen to your solution to the problem and I'll I'll discuss your solution with you and Mm -hmm. why I think you've chosen a good way to solve your problem. That's not my problem. It's your problem. Mm -hmm. And to me, I just felt like I'm going to say it was around, was it 08? Maybe it was a little bit earlier. It was around that point. Where I was like sitting here one day and I was like, okay, my inbox is empty. What do I do next? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to go. And I, and I went home. And it just felt awesome. <laughs> you know, and it was around then. And so then we had our kid the next year. And yeah. it was like, okay, I, I, I'm able to step back and have it, have it come up. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing for investors to hear. They want, you know, they want you to be here 50 hours a week, nose to the grindstone. And I did that. I did that for 10 years. I, I had that time period. Yeah. And now I don't feel like I need to do it. So for me internally, that is what I would say. Every measure of success in my kind of company, which means a company that I built to be profitable, to provide a, a cash income for my family, mm-hmm. in that model, not the ulama burn as much cash and be the massive player model, right. but in the model that we have here, that is that was success. And it was like, well, you know what? I'm done for the day. Yeah. You know, and I can leave here and the and the management team and the directors they know what to do. They're empowered to do it. They have the authority and the responsibility to get it done and with, without needing me. Mm-hmm. And my follow-up question, you already kind of answered this, but when you had that realization that day where you were sitting around, your inbox was empty, didn't seem like you were required anywhere, after so many years of hard work, what was that feeling like? Was that when you were like, you've achieved success? Was that kind of like when you could say to yourself, I'm successful. I accomplished. Well, my I goal felt or... like that came when I paid off my loan. Right. When I was able, because when I was looking for money, I was offering 49% of my company for $50,000 and I couldn't get anyone to bite on it. And so instead I, they gave me debt equity and it was interest free debt equity, which mm-hmm. was nice. And it took me you know, four ish years to pay it all back. But I felt like when I finally got rid of that debt and I went back and I, and I, and I gave a little bit of a jive, and I was like, oh, by the way, where the company is now, had you taken your 49%, here's what it would be <laughs> worth. You know, and it was a lot higher. So that, that felt kind of good. But for yeah. me, that was like step number one of I, I got rid of the debt. There's enough money in our bank account that if the business had to fold, we could pay every single employee and every single restaurant. And that's been something that we've put on our P&L every single day that this business has been growing and mm-hmm. in, in to show do we have enough money that if we all of a sudden shut down, we could pay everybody. Yeah. And as long as that's been a green number since roughly 02-ish, then that to me was like, whew, done. Right. Yeah, I would say maybe not success, but that was, I was no longer a net negative. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until that 08-ish, I'm not needed to be here all the time, that I felt like a net positive. So it kind of went from being a liability to being net equal to being a positive. Yeah. 
Now, I know as a result of that, some nuts and bolts about the business would change, right? Like your access to capital and how much cash flow you have and things like that. But when that shift happens, when you go from having this maybe dark cloud over your head of debt or obligations that you're not sure whether or not you'll be able to meet or when, when that goes away and you're able to, and th that those are no longer concerns, are you more like efficient or effective in I'm your less, work? Less motivated. Less motivated. Yeah. That, right. that fear of failure and debt was a very big motivator, right. but it also allowed me to open my eyes and, and focus on some other things. Instead of being a certain way, it changed me psychologically in the business and allowed me to focus on some other opportunities. You know, there was a time when we had a couple of managers that wanted to go into a, an area that I knew wouldn't work. It just wasn't us and it wasn't a business that we were going to go into. Yeah. But I kind of let them do it as a pet project. You know, and kind of, I realized that that was their motivation. And back in the day when I owed everybody money and if the business closed, I wouldn't have had enough money to pay anybody and mm -hmm. everything. I never would have allowed somebody to, to spend work time on, a, on an area that I didn't believe in. Right. But that allowed them to grow personally and to, you know, see that I, I believed in them enough that even though I disagree with their model, that uh, they could spend some time and use some company resources probing that area. Right. Were you a different manager then? Than I am now, yeah. certainly. I mean, it's kind of like I said before, it's kind of those three periods. And that was the middle period. Yeah. The period where the debt was paid off, <laughs> but I was still busting my hump all the time. Right. And it was in that period that I allowed that. Now I'll allow so much flexibility. So stress, le stress like, levels came down a bit oh, when, yeah. when success, success came and you paid off your debt and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're, we're almost up. I've got a couple more questions for you, cool. okay? Go for it. Uh, this is the last kind of funny one, and then I'm going to do a couple rapid-fire ones. I've listened to, again, this is on YouTube, but it was a, a recording of a Sherpa's customer uh, speaking with a <laughs> customer service representative Sunny. named yeah. Sonny. Yeah. Um, and I have to imagine that happens fairly often. Uh, am I right or wrong in thinking that? Um on a nominal level, it happens very often. Right. On a percentage level, almost never. So nominal level, what are we talking? Couple, couple times a week. Right. Um, has the and, and as you said before, you you know record for QC purposes, uh, phone calls and things like that that come through. How has, I mean, operating this business, you've become more face. You've come face to face with other humans, humanity, more than you might have if you've worked in an office job or something like that. Has your experience with Sherpas and your customers specifically changed your view on humanity at all? <laughs> Very deep. <laughs> Very deep. Um, okay, has my experience with Sherpas changed my view of humanity? No. No? No. There are, we've had some great experiences, but we've had great positives and great negatives that right. kind of just pushed it all towards the average. Yeah. So I don't feel I've always been a very positive person, and I always see the glasses half full. Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like my experiences here have warped that. Um, you know, the 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 experience that you're talking about that uh, with with Sunny and everything. Uh, my friend Jeremy Goldcorn, in who used to live in Beijing, who ran a blog called Donway.org, which you might have heard of. Um, he and I were out one night, and um, we, we were talking about bad customer experiences and how we have a blacklist of people that aren't allowed to order anymore because they've been so abusive. And mm -hmm. over time, the blacklist has actually shrank as it's become kind of easier to live here. Mm -hmm. The stress of being in China, you don't take it out on us anymore like people, some people used to. Right. Um, it's still there, though. But when Jeremy and I mm -hmm. were talking, as we were talking about this, I got a text message from another friend. 
about something totally unrelated, but I'll get back to why the text message is important. So Jeremy and I are talking about customer service experience. It was a very small conversation, five minutes of our night out. Then I, I got to work the next morning, and I saw this, what had happened with Sonny on the phone with a, with a kind of a verbally abusive customer. And I looked at the kind call of? record time, and it was like 7, 12 p.m. And I looked at my phone, and that text message I had gotten from my friend while Jeremy and I were talking about customer service was at 7, 12 p.m. So, and I do not send conversations that we have, you know, out to just random people. Mm-hmm. But it just happened to be that it was at that exact same time. So I emailed them, and I was like, "Dude, you won't believe it! At the exact moment of our conversation last night, this happened." And I and I wrote some details about it. And he's like, "You've got to let me listen to it." I'm like, "All right, I'll let you listen to it. But if you repost this on the blog, here's the parameters. You know, you got to change the voices, you got to change the names and do all stuff." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, no problem." That didn't happen. So I sent it up to him. <laughs> well, all he did was remove the whole beginning of the call where it's confirming name and confirming and everything. Uh-huh. So he cut right to the bad part. But he left the fact that the restaurant was Blue Frog. And he left her name in. Yeah. So any quick Google search, I mean, we're the only ones that deliver Blue Frog. So that pegged it as Sherpa's right then and there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he didn't change the voice at all. And I stressed out so much over the next two months because that customer never ordered again. And what happened to that customer? You know, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And this guy was not very – he didn't hurt anybody. He was abusive on the phone towards her and mm-hmm. was kind of con- condescending and, you know – Kind of, yeah. And uh, yes. you can you can Google as I think it was two million R and B douchebag was what people were calling that. Yeah, that, yeah. that so thing. Douchebag was in the title. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, I feel terrible. What happened to this? Did he commit suicide? Did he lose his job? Did what he do on the phone warrant that? Absolutely not. And, and maybe I, nothing I really happened. Really, str- maybe, but yeah. but it's the downside of that maybe that concerns me. Right. You know, and this guy never ordered again. From that order, never ordered again. Is it simply because his experience was so bad? He was like, I'm never using him again. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But most likely, somebody recognized his voice. And that got back to him. Mm-hmm. And maybe that got emailed around the office. And maybe he was just having a bad day. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe something really horrible happened in his personal life and he wanted to take it out on that person. And, I, you know, since then, you've never read of anything else coming out. So, damn you, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't. I didn't look at it that way, and I didn't expect to hear you explain it in that way. But I mean, it's nice to see that you have that, not only from a business perspective of losing the customer, but obviously that empathetic point of view where you know you don't want someone's lowest moment to define them, which is kind of what happens when shit gets on the internet. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Um, All right. So, last couple questions here. Three pieces of advice for people who want to perform better, succeed more in life. If you have any. Can I put it in China on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an old adage that forgiveness is easier than permission, and that is 100% true here. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't do something illegal. But on the other hand, there's a lot of laws here that don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a gray area. It's a good way of saying it. And a lot of times in China, when you want to find out, um, you want to get a permit for something. And you can go stand in 16 lines at the government bureau, and you're never really going to get a permit if that thing doesn't exist. If that business model doesn't exist. So a good way to do it is just start doing that business model. Eventually, someone's going to come and get mad at you Mm -hmm. and find out who is this person, what department are they in, and who's their boss. Because by them coming here and getting mad at you is really very equivalent to, hi, I'm the guy that you need (laughs) to get this done. Right. You know, and and that's a great way to do it. Yeah. Uh, Number two, uh, again, this is the China one. You need to be able to... um, 
completely ignore the elephant in the room. You need to be able – two experiences that I'll say very quickly that happened to me at Sherpa's. One was the government came and shut down our call center one time. <clears throat> or they came and told us we were going to get shut down, some, I don't know, system change. And they said, um, okay, well, you know, you're going to be shut down for like six weeks. And I was like, well, can we forward the phones? No. Can we do a voice me- – we didn't have a website at the time. Can we do a voice message telling customers a new number? No. He's giving me no options. Then he left and he turned around and gave me a personal name card. And he was like, well, I run a, a private business on the side and we can take care of this all for you. And he did. In one night, they did the project amazingly. They pulled all of our phone lines out. They changed everything. We never had to be shut down for a minute. And it wasn't very expensive. It was like twenty five grand to use them to do the project. And then uh, he came in on the next morning and Monday wearing his government hat and uh, wanted to fine us for illegally using a private company that's not licensed by the government to do that work. Wow. You know? And Jesus. and it was like it was so and you can't just explode and point your finger in his face and it was you you know and and you have to kind of empathize with his situation. Mm-hmm. He's forced to do that by his job because that's his role at the at the telecom. But you did know? he tell someone else that he you were using? You his know, it was so long or? ago. I don't even want to get into all the details, but it was just that bizarreness. Or another time when um, there's some famous or some general's daughter got hurt by an air conditioner or something and had to do with a faulty awning. So the, the government bureaus decided that they were going to do an awning monitoring service, go around the city and find the bad awnings and report it, but they had no funding for it. So they had to raise the money locally from businesses who have awnings. So they came to see us and we sat there and talked about it. And it, it was the same bureau that's responsible for parking on the street. So we have like a hundred couriers that park out front of our mm-hmm, building, mm-hmm. which if they wanted to be nasty about it, they could make us you know, park only 30 per block and guys yeah. have to fork right away. So we had to take the meeting with them and empathize <clears throat> with their situation. And, and in the end, they drew out how many awnings we had in our building, what we should pay. And, and it wasn't a bribe because they were able to give you a, a tax receipt for it. But in the end, you know, I'll call it 2,000 quad or whatever that was. And when they left, you know, I looked at our account and we just started laughing. We don't have a single awning. <laughs> you know, you're here. That there's, was coming. there's no awning here, right? You know, and so they're, they, you, you have to just roll with the punches sometimes. Yeah. Do I want these guys to be my enemy? No, because they control the parking. Mm-hmm. We have couriers all over the place. But on the other hand, can I say, guys, we don't have an awning? No, because these poor guys are somehow have to raise all this money. So we're the first person they come to because we have more to lose than anybody else in this, right. in, on this block at least. Yeah. Uh, a third piece of advice. I don't really have a go-to. While you're, while you're thinking about that one, that makes me think. Another guest once gave the advice, and that don't try to change China. You know, if you're if you're coming here to do business, you know, because I think we've both seen examples of really bright, motivated, whatever foreign entrepreneurs coming here, and when things don't jive with rational thinking, which is often the case here, or however things were done back in their home country. They immediately there's like a schism. They're they're like this isn't right. You yeah. know I can't operate in this way. This this world doesn't make sense. And it really they really get hung up on that, and that causes you know all sorts of uh, uh, blockages and and potential reasons for failure. Yeah. So I think that advice and just you said roll with the punches when they come in, smile, nod, do whatever you have to do, but don't try to graft your idea of what's right and what's supposed to happen. Yeah. On what what happens here? Yeah, exactly. And I feel like if I threw a third one in right now, it'd just be something false. All right. We've talked about I like three or four other things about learning Chinese and doing a good deal with the bad guy, and some of the other ones which I strongly. There's been a lot of advice. Yeah. How about this? If you could call your 20 year old self, what would you say? Wow. Okay. At 20, I was in college. Um, you know, I received some great advice between college and my MBA, and. I, 
a person told me that when you're doing your MBA, don't be concerned about your grade point because nobody's going to ask. It's not like undergrad. Right. And they said, you know, maybe there's two or three consulting companies out there that if you do want to work for a consulting company, you know, the big ones, they're going to ask your grade point, but no one else will. Mm -hmm. And that was some of the best advice that I've ever personally got because it completely changed that 18 months of my life. Right. I chose five or six classes that I had no interest in learning. I failed them. I just outright failed. You know, one was negotiating skills. It, my class was me and 37 Chinese people, and they sent a guy from England to come over and teach us for 13 weeks about how to negotiate. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what? You know, and, 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 at, and just like three or four other classes that I didn't want to learn it. And that allowed me to really focus on government structure and marketing and accounting and finance and some of the ones that I really wanted to do because right. I was fine just failing those classes. Um, and it really helped me out a lot. Right. And so I would say if, you know, I would give myself that advice, right. but I already ended up getting it from somebody else anyway. Did you, the one piece do you that... teach now at some, or have you taught? No. Okay. You, you never did lectures or anything at Siebes or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've gone back and been a guest. Right. Lecturer, yeah, and I'm okay. doing another event Friday this week with right. them, but I've never been a, a full-time professor by any means. Yeah. I, would, I would think your, you know, I think the class would be much more... Uh, attentive to someone like you coming in with all the actual real world well, I get invited experience. a lot you, for you like entrepreneur class right. and stuff and I love right. going there and teaching because you mentioned this guy from England come and talk about negotiating in China I mean what the hell does he know about what was the stuff, school right? thinking when they organized <laughs> that like someone someone to fill the fill the position um, best advice you ever ever received you just said it right so that's yep. that's that's the best advice do you have a favorite quote I kind of feel like that one about forgiveness and permission is one of my favorites. That's not mine. Um, well, it doesn't have to be yours. I mean, it's the one that you that you favor, the one you heard, you know, Winston Churchill, whoever. God, there's so many out there. Give me one. What comes to mind? What, what are you thinking right now? Well, I'm thinking cliches. A lot of cliches come to mind. That one example about how the Weiji is crisis and opportunity together. You know, the Chinese word for, is it Danger. Weiji, right. or crisis, I guess. it's. Oh, yeah, Weiji means crisis, and that's oh, yeah, danger that before, and yeah. opportunity put together. That's right. And that really helps open your mind about, about China. Right. But that's not necessarily a quote. That's good. I like, Well, we can, we can make that a quote. <laughs> I like that. You just said it. Um, person you admire most. Wow. And you're, you're, you're fine with living or dead. Yep. Admire most. My wife just jumps my mind for putting up with me and allowing me to come back and forth to China and having a kid and all the stuff, you know. That like, works. Wow. You know, you, you, you ask that question, you expect to hear like Mandela or Gandhi and all this stuff. Most of the time when I ask it to people, it's family members, aunt, wife, you know, grandfather. Good. So, so we go, we so, go so on so with life? Like <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's always that first kind of thing that pops into your mind. That's, sure. It's Must mean it. it's legit, and right? Must mean it's it. real. Yeah. Uh, okay, last bit. These are word associations. There's six of them. First thing that comes to your mind, don't think. Is this editable? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever comes to your mind, all right? They're not hard. Sherpas. Food. Success. Failure. Angry customer. Too often. China. Big. Fun. Success. Future. Bright. Mark Sechia? Close enough. Sechia. Sechia. 
I don't know. What comes to mind when you th- – I told you before. I'm not introspective. Skip. Phone a friend. Skip. All right. Cool. Well, Mark, that's, uh, that's all I got for cool. you today. Right. Thank you very much, I really much, appreciate John. the time. I know I we're uh, encroaching on your uh, – End of day Who opportunities. Like talking here. about themselves. It's <laughs> great. I usually ask if you want, if you have anything to put out there in terms of where people can get in touch. But I presume all my Sherpas, contacts are on the website. Is it Sherpas.com.cn? Sherpa.com.cn. Yeah. Well, the other one actually points to us, but yeah, my website. And your, right there, your yeah, email is there. You're yep. got. You're always out there for feedback from customers and yep, all that kind definitely. of stuff. Are you still on the phones these days? You know, all managers have to do it every month. So yeah. But, really? Yeah. So you still answer a couple? And we do deliveries twice a year. It must be fun. Mm. You don't yeah. want everyone sitting up there looking down their nose at, you know, the ivory tower. Of course. So we have to get out there. It's so easy for us to say, well, we should do this and we should. So do you do, do that. deliveries for like a whole day? Um, well, we do because we can't get on the bikes because of the liability of that. What we do is we choose a day in an area where there's a lot of restaurants and we do the food pickup. Right. And then we choose another day that's by customers and we wait and the couriers bring the food to us and we do the customers. Nice. So that way you can get like eight managers together and kind of do it. Cool. Awesome. All right, and obviously, as usual, you can get us get at us at techinshanghai.com. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. Woo! Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.